The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. There's been a lot of talk this past couple weeks in the preterist community over a video that was posted two weeks ago about a full preterist pastor who has forsaken the faith and become an atheist. Now many of you know this man. He's spoke at our conferences. He's been around. So I just feel like I need to take this opportunity today to talk about the pain and destruction that sin causes. I want to deal with this. And as I watch this video... I was reminded of Psalm 38, David's cry in the midst of his sin. So what happens here? I mean, how does a pastor become an atheist? Well, Sam Frost was quick to jump on it and indicate that, well, he was a full preterist. That leads to atheism. Well, 26 years for me so far, it hadn't led anywhere near that. Okay, it's going in the opposite direction. But let me say this, and I'm just throwing this out there for your thoughts, okay? I know four people who are Christians, who are preterists, who have left the faith and become non-believers, atheists, agnostics, whatever. But all four of them held to the erroneous doctrine of covenant creationism. Now, I know that correlation is not causation. And this doesn't mean that covenant creationism is the reason they left, but it's just curious to me. And I know that some of the things they believed because of covenant creation just made them question. And then they're out the door. Now, I'm asking you, fact check me on this. Maybe you know some, I I can give you four names, okay? Off the top of my head. Maybe you know someone who left the faith that that wasn't true of. I don't know. So why did this pastor leave the faith? Well, if you listen to the video, I think it's very telling. Because he just goes into the pain and the suffering that he was dealing with. Now, it's possible that I saw this video a little differently than others because I know the details behind the scenes. I know the rest of the story. I know the story that wasn't told, okay? And for those who don't know who I'm talking about, I'm going to change his name in this message just so I don't have to keep saying his name. And I'm going to refer to him as Demas. Some of you will get that, okay? So in the video, Demas says, Christ dying for our sins is a very odd thing that we just buy into because we're brainwashed. The Bible is bullshit. Am I allowed to say that? I don't think any of it is true. It is a book of fiction. Christianity is a cult. Now again, this is a man who became a Christian, at a, raised in a Christian home, became a Christian at a very early age, was a pastor for years, a very talented, gifted preacher. And this is what he says now. And, you know, they say it laughingly, and they're on the video. They're kind of joking and mocking Christian. You know, Christians are a bunch of idiots, you know. And talking about his divorce that he went through and losing his ministry and losing his job, which his ministry provided for, he says this, that was a very difficult time of my life. I went through a huge depression. I lost all my confidence. I became like an infantile that just cried at every moment. I was a mess, and I hid away. I lost everything, and I was dead inside. I was so depressed that I couldn't stand on my own two feet. And I mean that literally. It was bad. When I say I was an infantile, I was like a little baby. I had nothing left in me. I was so depressed. I was not the same man. I wasn't even a man. Now, let me ask you something. What do you think caused him to be so miserable? 
I would say it's the guilt of sin. You know, why is he just, why did this, well, like I said, I'm going to fill you in on some details and maybe you'll understand this a little bit more, okay? And I'm going to fill you in on the details because this is basically an open rebuke to this pastor, former pastor, okay? The Bible says this in 1 Timothy 5, 19 and 20. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Demas called me one day. We were friends. And he told me he was divorcing his wife of 20 years. And I said to him, what's her name? And he said, who? I said, the woman you're leaving your wife for. He says, there's nobody else. I said, you're lying to me. I have never, ever seen a person leave their spouse that did not have somebody already lined up. I've just never seen it happen. Not saying it has ever happened. I've never seen it. And every time I think, well, this is a rare case, it turns out to be, guess what? They got somebody else. So he just adamantly denied it. And okay, we went on. About two months later, I remember because we were down in the Florida Keys with the Hoferts on vacation, and he called me. And he said, I've been having an adulterous affair. I'm like, yeah, I know that. What's her name? Here's the deal. As a pastor, he was doing marriage counseling with another couple, and he ends up sleeping, committing adultery with the woman he's counseling. Uh, You can't make this stuff up, people. So here's a pastor who's committing adultery, decides to get divorced over this, okay? Loses the church he's been working so hard to build. Loses his job, so now he's got no income. And then he goes into a deep depression. Let me give you some more details. On 7-23-18, I received an email from someone in his church. From a, let, from a guy in the community who had written this letter to the church leaders, letting them know what was going on. And here's what he says. This is the bartender's husband who writes this. My wife is a bartender at Maryland's brew house. A few weeks ago, Demas, of course, he's not calling him that, but we changed the name. So Demas came in with a person we are friends with. My wife served them. Demas proceeded to get quite plastered. Later that night, my wife told me about a pastor she met that got really drunk. This was a problem near the end there, and I counseled him on this. I'm like, what is going on here? you just like you're out of control with alcohol. Alcohol kind of numbs things for you, you know, so you can go on in your sin and maybe numb the pain a little bit. The guy says, this past Saturday, Demas came in with two other men, and they started drinking. My wife was at the bar and served them along with other patrons. Demas passed around his card and invited people to church at the same time getting more and more drunk. I don't know if this is just malignant dumb or what. You know, I mean, you know, at least try to be incognito if you're going to act like a fool. Don't hand a, hey, by the way, here's who I am and I'm pastor in a church. You know, come to my church. This is when things got creepy and disturbing. He started to hit on my wife, telling her she's beautiful, asking her to go run away with him. Let me just say this. First of all, I would never let my wife bartend. Hey, honey, go be around a bunch of drunk guys at night, you know, by yourself. That's a really smart move, you know. Asking her to go run away with him, that they should be together. My wife wears her rings and flashed them, telling him she's married. He answered that he is too, but that maybe that will change. He kept telling her he would leave his wife and take her, my wife. He and his friend proceeded to ask my wife repeatedly for breast milk. I'm like, okay, this is, you know what, alcohol. You ever heard the country song, Alcohol? I'll make you put a lampshade on your head. I'll make you do all kinds of dumb things. Yes, it will, okay? He said, at this point, my wife got uncomfortable. Whoa, took her a while here. And tried to distance herself from him. He began to ask her when her shift was over that he would wait for her. They paid and began to linger. They were standing by the end of the bar, and as my wife leaned in to tell him, uh, let him know that they're all paid up, he reached out for her inner thigh and tried to grab her crotch. 
She backed away and said, no, do not touch me. He then leaned in and tried to grab her butt. And she warned him again, do not touch, not to touch her. He then told her that him and his buddies would wait for her and take her out for some fun. Now, I would have called the cops at that point, okay? That they would have her. My wife went and told her manager what was going on, but at this point, Demas and his friends had left. My wife found out that other women at Maryland's, he's talking about other employees there, Marlins, experienced the same treatment from Demas, and Demas is known as that creepy pastor guy. Great reputation at the bar there, local bar. Hey, there's that creepy pastor guy. All right, <clears throat> so in the midst of his sinful living, he's getting drunk to try to cover up, I think, the pain that sin does bring. In this, he cheats on his wife with someone he's counseling with, the church gets wind of all this. He loses his job, loses his ministry. And in the video, he says this. He says, Christianity's whole stance is rooted in the idea of sin. The whole Bible is about the stupid idea called sin. I am so much more free now than I have ever been as a Christian. Freedom not to have the guilt and the weight on you of some God that's angry with you. You know, it seems to me like his sinful lifestyle has caused him a lot of misery. Again, I hear this and I think of Psalm 38. And it should. This is actually encouraging to me, okay? Because guilt caused him to reject God so he can be free from sin and not worry about the consequences. So I got an idea. I'll just... Give up on the idea of God. I'll pretend He doesn't exist. Then I can sin and don't have to worry about it anymore. And that just seems what's going on here. Like, my sin was killing me, so I just fixed it. Not that I corrected the sin, I just bailed out. So let me ask you this morning, how do we, what is sin? How do you find that? Well, John makes it clear for us. In 1 John 3, 4, he says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. God has laid out His law. Sin is violating that. 1 John 5, 17 says, All wrongdoing is sin. And what makes something wrong? Well, the Bible says it's wrong. That's what makes it wrong. People, we don't need to make up sins. There's plenty of them in the Bible, okay? Sin is disobeying God. It's violating His holy law. God is the Creator, the lawgiver, and any violation of His moral will is sin. So how do we know God's moral will? Well, it's revealed to us throughout the Scripture. And any violation of that is sin, and sin has consequences. I think that Demas' story is a powerful example of the destructive power of sin and the damage that it brings to a life. You know, I, I oppose lordship theology. I vehemently oppose it. I'm absolutely free grace. And people say, well, you don't think there's consequences to sin? You don't know anything about what I preach if you think that. Sin is destructive. Sin will ruin you. And so for our study time this morning, I want to look at a biblical example of a great man of God and the severe price he paid for his sin. I'm sure you're familiar about the story of David. Not David and Goliath, not that story. David and Bathsheba. Very familiar to most Christians. What happened to David after he repented of his sin is not that well known. I mean, the story of David and Bathsheba is known, but what happened afterwards? I don't think too many people really know this story. So we're going to look at that this morning. I want you to see what David's sin cost him and hopefully come away with a greater understanding of the heinousness of sin, God said that David was a man after his own heart. Speaking of Saul, the Scriptures say this, But now your kingdom shall, be, shall not be continued. Yahweh has sought out a man after his own heart, and Yahweh has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what Yahweh commanded you. Saul was disobedient. God replaced him. And Saul's replacement, David, he says, is a man after his own heart. Well, Paul says this of David in Acts 13, 22. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, 
I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Now, the NIV Cultural Background Study Bible says this, after his own heart probably means of his own choosing. The phrase does not necessarily reflect the piety of David, but demonstrates God's exercise of will and the rejection of Saul. Commenting on this phrase, a man after my heart, Albert Barnes writes this, this expression is found in 1 Samuel 13, 14. The connection shows that it means simply a man who would not be rebellious and disobedient as Saul was, but would do the will of God and keep his commandments. This refers doubtless rather to the public than the private character of David. To his character as king, it means that he would make the will of God the great rule and law of his reign. In contradiction from Saul, who is a king, had disobeyed God. Now, one of the characteristics especially dis that distinguished David's rule was he rigidly guarded the people from idolatry and all the abominations which attended idol worship, and he kept them faithful to the adoration of the pure and holy God of their fathers. So David did that well as a king. 1 Kings 15.5 says, because David did what was right in the eyes of Yahweh. And you think, what about Bathsheba? He did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him in all the days of his life. Oh, yeah, except for the matter of Uriah the Hittite. As we'll see, David had his failures. But I think the bent of his life was to love and serve Yahweh. He was a very good king. But then there's Bathsheba. So let's look at what David's disobedience cost him. 2 Samuel 11.1 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. That's a problem, people. Okay, in the spring of the year, after the latter rains were over, it was customary to resume military activity. All right? And although it was customary for kings to accompany their armies, they didn't always do so. But David, for reasons not given, he stayed in Jerusalem. David had been king for 17 years, and he should have been in battle with his men. That's where he belonged. But instead, he stays behind, and he sends Joab. Joab was David's chief of staff. He was his four-star general. And I think there's a principle here. When you are not where you should be, you become subject to temptations that you wouldn't experience if you were, were where you belonged. I mean, you've got to be careful where you put yourself, okay? And when you put yourself in that situation, you open yourself up to temptation, you have to be careful, all right? I hope that makes sense. 2 Samuel 11.2 says, It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. I love that they throw that in. Hey, you know, this is a really good, you know, good-looking woman here. So David's looking at a woman that he shouldn't be because he should have been at war. Now David at this time had three beautiful wives, but he's tempted because he saw somebody he didn't have, Bathsheba. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Elam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? So instead of fleeing temptation, David pursues it. Who is this woman? Now, David, I mean, Jerusalem was not that big at the time. And if her house is right there near the kings, then he obviously knew who this woman was. You know, he's trying to get more information here. And David really should have done what Joseph did in Genesis 39. Remember what Joseph did? She come and grabbed his coat. Lie with me. And what did he do? Keep the coat broad. I'm out of here. You know, he ran. He fled. And that's what you do with temptation. You flee with it. You don't play with it. You don't flirt with temptation. You don't see how far will this go. No, you flee. That's the proper way to respond to temptation. 2 Samuel 11:4. So David sent messengers and he took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. Okay, this is adultery. 
This great man of God violated two of the Ten Commandments. Now listen, as king, kings pretty much do what they want to do. So let's not put too much of this on Bathsheba. She probably didn't have any choice in this matter, okay? It's adultery. He took her, he violates two of the commandments. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. That's where it started. He saw his neighbor's wife, he coveted her. You shall not commit adultery. That followed. He began coveting, he committed adultery. Notice the parentheses at the end of verse 4. Now, she had been purifying herself from her cleanliness, uncleanliness. What's that about? Why I throw that in there? What's he t- trying to tell us here? Huh? No. Do what? Okay, but what else? Something's very specific being told here. He's saying she's not pregnant at this time. Okay? The NIV Cultural Background Study Bible, she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. This notice indicates that Bathsheba had just finished menstruating, eliminating any possibility that Bathsheba could have been pregnant from her husband. So it's making it clear, this is not her husband's baby, all right? By her husband, thus complicating David's attempt to cover up his misdeed, all right? So in 2 Samuel eleven five, and the woman conceded, conceived, and she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. I don't think he's probably too happy to hear that. It started by him not being where he should be, then he covets, then he commits adultery, and now she's pregnant. What do I do? Well, many Christians would say, well, David must not have been a Christian. I mean, if David did this, he couldn't be a Christian, right? That's probably lordship theology. Let me ask you something. Can a Christian commit adultery? Yes. (laughs) Let me tell you this, people. Please, mark this down if you had to. Apart from the grace of God, a Christian can commit any sin that any unbeliever can commit. Any unbeliever. Okay? No, I I had a friend, a guy that discipled me, and uh, he said to me, a Christian can do anything an unbeliever can do except go to hell. I believed in hell at that time, so. <laughs> but I, but I, that stuck with me, because you know we get this idea, oh, Christians can't do this. There's a lot of exhortations in the Word of God not to do things. Why? Because we do them, okay? Most sins that are condoned by Christians are just as bad as what David did. And David should have confessed his sin, but he doesn't. And let me tell you another principle. The longer you stay in sin, the worse it gets. David just compounding things, okay? So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Job sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked Joab, how's it going? <laughs> what, a, what a hypocrite. How's it going out there, you know? How are the people doing? And how's the war going? He didn't care about any of that stuff. The crisis brought about by pregnancy required some kind of resolution. What do I do? So David determined, I know what I'll do. I'll get Uriah home. I'll send Uriah to his house. You spend your night. And then he'll think it's Uriah's baby. Or she won't think that. He will. And well, I'll cover up my adultery. All right. And David said to Uriah, go down to your house, wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house. And there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all his servants, and he did not go down to his house. See, David wasn't counting on a man of character, okay? Maybe he thought people were like him. So, you know, I'll just cover up my sin. Well, it didn't work. So it failed. So what do I do now? Well, come on back here. Let me get you drunk and see if we can change the situation here. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of the Lord, but he did not go down to his house. So after David get him drunk, Uriah's sense of loyalty to his comrades still prevailed over his desire for his wife. So now, you know, David's just getting in trouble. So David said, let me write a letter asking them to make sure you get killed. Here, take this letter to your commander. And in the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, then draw back from him 
that he may be struck down and die. You know, and this is just what makes me sick here is that Joab does it. You know, well, the king said, and how many times do you hear this during COVID? Well, I'm just following orders. Somebody stop doing, following orders and do what's right for once in your life. Well, I could lose my job. Good, lose it then. Stand up. Nobody wants to stand up. This was wrong. He should have said, wait a minute, I'm not doing that. I'm not having this guy killed. What did it cost him? Absolutely. But people, we don't just follow orders because somebody tells us to do it. Now, David moves from adultery to murder. Uriah wouldn't sleep with his wife, so David has him killed. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Now David is now murder. He's broken another of the Ten Commandments. You shall not murder. So David, a man of God, commits adultery, lusts after his neighbor's wife, then commits adultery, and then commits murder. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, I wonder how she felt about that. Well, he died in a war. He's at the war. He, she doesn't know all the intricate details here. She lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. That is one pitiful, weak, watered-down translation. I'm embarrassed of the ESV there, okay? New American Standard says, but the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. That's a little bit different, okay? Gives you more of a real flavor of what's going on here. Not once in all of this did David stop and confess his sin. He just keeps piling it up. He goes from one thing to another, trying to cover up his sin. Proverbs said, whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Now, lest you think that David is just having a great time, sitting it up, look with me at Psalms 38 that was read earlier. This psalm is supposed to have been composed after David's sin with Bathsheba. Okay? Oh, Yahweh, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Your arrows have sunk into me. Your hand has come down on me. There's no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. Does that sound like David is enjoying his sin? It feels like a human pincushion. Like the thing I read you from Demas earlier, I just feel this psalm is... You know, David's saying the same thing. Does this, this people is what we call the joy of sin. Okay? My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I'm utterly bowed down and prostate all the day I go about mourning. My sides are filled with burning. There is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. Oh, Lord. All my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs. My strength fails. The light of my eyes is also gone from me. My friends and my companions stand aloof from my plague. My nearest of kin stand far off. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. Again, sounds like what Demas said in the video about his result of his sin. He says, things that led me to become an atheist were, I started to realize that Christianity is very much about suffering while he's in the midst of his suffering because of his sin. It's about this horrible life. He said, Christian, the Christian life is just this horrible life. Christians are miserable. Well, ones in sin should be miserable. That's how it's made, okay? Christianity is about avoiding pleasure and suffering. So he, he just convinced himself, this is Christianity. I'm so miserable, this is what Christianity is, I don't want it. Yes, if you're living in sin, this is what happens. This is what the Bible teaches all through it. 
Listen, when God's people follow Him and honor Him and serve Him, there's a blessedness that's beyond comparison. When they don't, He deals with it. Psalm 38, 17, and 18. I am ready to fall. My pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity. I'm sorry for my sin. Finally. David's had enough. God can play pretty rough. Okay? He really can. And David confesses his sin. You know, believer, the sooner we come to this point, the better off we're going to be. When you sin, don't try to cover it up. Don't try to hide and figure something. Just deal with it. Okay? 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. To confess your sin, confess there's homologeo in the Greek. Homologeo means to agree with another. So it's agreeing with God. So when you're saying the same thing about your sin that God says about it, God's going to forgive you. He's going to bring you back into fellowship into communion with God. And when we're in that communion, we're constantly cleansed. This is a beautiful description of the intimacy and the fellowship that our union should bring when we walk in communion with God. Now let's continue on with David's story. God sent him a prophet to confront him in his sin. This is just so powerful. And Yahweh sent Nathan to David. Go talk to the king. Straighten him out. Okay, he's a mess. So he came to him and he said, There were two men in a certain city, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds. The poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. Think of your pet that you're so attached to, okay? He used to eat of his morsel, and drink from his cup, and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So this guy's got one lamb, this rich man just seemed, I'll take that, I'm not taking mine. Now, this case that's presented by Nathan may appear to have nothing to do with David's crimes, since it really doesn't deal with adultery and murder. But what Nathan's case demonstrates is that adultery and murder were only the end results of a more serious crime, and that's the abuse of power. Here's a king abusing his power. David is formally indicted by the divine council, speaking through the prophet, not only for taking another man's wife, for believing that he could take whatever he wanted and not being satisfied with with what God had already given him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against this man. And he said to Nathan, As Yahweh lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. What a hypocrite. Now listen. He doesn't say, kill this man. He deserves to die, but he's not going to die. You know, it's interesting how easily we can see the sin of somebody else, but we don't see it in our own lives. You know, he's not thinking about, what's this story got to do? You know, I, I, you think he'd kind of pick up. Why are you telling me this story? But so David just pronounced judgment on himself. Okay? The guy who did this, well, that's you. So you deserve to die. And he says, then David says this, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. David would have been like, would have liked to have been able to sentence this man to death, but he couldn't do that. So he says, he'll pay fourfold. Why fourfold? Where did he come up with that? Okay. Well, if David's saying it, it's got to come out of the law, right? Exodus 22, 1. If a man steals an ox or sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox, four sheep for a sheep. The story was, he took somebody's lamb. So David said, well, according to the law, he's going to repay fourfold. Now, I want you to remember this, okay? 
Keep in mind what he's saying here. He shall restore the lamb fourfold. All right, hang on to that thought. 2 Samuel 12, 7. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house, your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you much more. Why have you despised the word of Yahweh to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife. You killed Uriah. Don't blame this on Joab. All right, you did it. It wasn't the other people in the war. You've taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your own house. Hang on to that thought. Okay, David? Because of this, the sword's not going to depart. Because you have despised me. That's really important. What David did was despising God because he's just doing his own thing. He's ignoring God. You have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Now notice verse 11. Thus says Yahweh, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. Who's that prophecy about? Huh? Absalom. When, during the coup, Absalom took his wives on the roof, slept with them in the sight of all Israel. That's a power move, okay? You take over the harem, you take over the wives, I'm in charge, all right? Uh, what I want you to hang on here is out of his own house. Fourfold, out of his own house. Now David finally repents. David said to Nathan, I've sinned against Yahweh. And Nathan said to David, Yahweh has put away your sin. You shall not die. Now this is where we pick up Psalm 38, 18. I have sinned. David confesses his sin. God forgives him. Now notice what Nathan says in response to David's sin. Yahweh has also put away your sin. You won't die. You know, when we confess our sin, God forgives us and restores us to fellowship. Now, someone's bound to say here, boy, David got away with a lot. I mean, he enjoyed the pleasures of sin. He lived himself up, and then he makes confession, and God forgives him, and it's all over, and big deal. If you think that, first of all, you're forgetting Psalm 38. Okay? You're forgetting how miserable David was in his sin. But secondly, you're forgetting, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that will he reap. The law of the harvest is you reap what you sow. When David confessed his sin, God forgave him, restored him to fellowship, but he didn't remove the consequence of his sin. Let's say that you go out and you can get involved in some kind of sin. Let's say you go out and you're having sex with, running around with people having sex, okay? And you contract AIDS, and then you realize this is wrong, so you go back to God and you confess your sin, and God forgives you and moves you back into fellowship. To your, does the AIDS go away? Probably not. You probably die of it, okay? I told you a story last week about a homosexual man that contracted AIDS. He, God forgave me, came back into fellowship. He died alone. He died of AIDS, all right? You reap what you sow. And David paid way beyond his experience of Psalm 38. David was disciplined, all right? Remember, he shall restore the lamb fourfold out of his own house, all right? Let's look at what happened to David because of his sin. Well, the first thing that happened was David's four-month-old child dies, okay? Nevertheless, because of this deed, you have utterly scorned Yahweh, the child who was born to you, shall die. 2 Samuel 12, 18, on the seventh day, the child died. So David's four-month-old child of Bathsheba dies because of David's sin. Think about this, parents. Can you even imagine how you feel if your child dies because of your sin? Believers, this is something we all have to understand. Our sin 
affects others. Let's say your sin is drunkenness. Will it affect others in your home? Yeah, there's probably verbal, physical abuse going on in your family because of it. Maybe you lose your job because of it. You're not able to provide for your family. Maybe you drive drunk and you actually end up killing someone in your family or killing somebody else. People, you don't ever sin in isolation. It affects those around you, those closest to you. All right? Our sin affects others, and David's sin destroyed his family. Number one, remember, fourfold out of your own house. David's four-month-old child dies. Next, Amnon rapes Tamar. Now, Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. (laughs) This is a very interesting verse here, because in the Septuagint, the Greek translation, it says here, David's son, agapaho, her. Agape. Now, we have this idea that agape love is the special God kind of love. Well, he loves her, so he rapes her. I did a message. It's, it's called Don't Agape on 1 John 2, 12 and 14. I'd encourage you to go look that up. And it just I deal with the idea of agape love because people think that's a special, super kind of love, God's love. Well, not in accord to this and other verses that talk about, you know, this was not definitely God's kind of love. Uh, 2 Samuel 13, 14. But he would not listen. She tries to stop him. And being stronger than she, he violated her and he lay with her. All right, this is a strange story. He's just so enamored by Tamar. And he just works up this plot to get her into his house. He pretends he's sick. She feeds him. He grabs her. He violates her. And when they're done, he says, get out of here. He hated her with the same love with which he loved her. What the heck happened? But he gets her, he rapes her, and then he throws her out. She says, just ask the king, he'll give me to you. He, he just, no, it was over. When King David heard of these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. I guess you could understand that, right? There's hatred in the family now. So David's son, Amnon, raped his half-sister, Tamar. Now David knew that he's the cause of Tamar's pain. So we see that death and sexual sin in David's household, and David is reaping what he has sown. And David is reaping fourfold out of his own house. So that's two. Number three is Amnon is murdered by Absalom. Okay? Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine. And when I say to you, strike Amnon and kill him. Don't fear. Have I not commanded you? Be of courage and be vigilant. So they do it. They kill him. They're out of the sheep shearing and they, you know, he invites all these people. He waited for years to take care of this, but he did. He killed Amnon. His hatred was there. It never dissipated, so he killed him. So David's discipline is severe. You can only imagine the great pain as his family is being destroyed and he's remembering fourfold out of your... I pronounce this. Fourfold out of your own house. Okay? It's coming upon me. All right? What's the final one? Absalom is killed. Okay? Absalom basically works up a coup. David and, you know, household, they run... He's in Jerusalem, he's in charge, and then they're fighting David. And uh, he worked, you know, he sits in the gate for a while and, you know, gets everybody on his side, and then he overthrows this coup, and then David leaves the city running for his life. And, and no matter what Absalom did, David loved him. I mean, he leaves the city because of him. Absalom's trying to kill him, and David loves him. And David tells his men, listen, deal gently with Absalom. This caused a lot of problems, okay? But, you know, he's our enemy. He's trying to kill us. But deal gently with that man. And then someone finds him and he gets his head stuck in a hair stuck in a tree. And so they go and they kill him. 
And the king, and then the, the Cushite is bringing a message to David to let him know what's going on. The king said to the Cushite, is it well with the young man Absalom? I mean, <laughs> this guy's trying to kill me, but how's he doing? And the Cushite answered, may the enemies of the Lord, the king, and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and he wept. And as he went, he said, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would to God I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. David is literally shattered because of his sin. And David is wishing that God would have killed him instead. And this is very disheartening for the army, of course. But what could be more painful as a parent than years of pain watching the family destroyed because of your sin? David knew the pain was his fault. David paid fourfold out of his own house because of his sin. David was held to a high standard because he was king. His chastening was severe because of his sin was severe. God had a purpose, though, in this discipline. He wasn't just punishing David. He's teaching him not to sin. He's helping him to grow and mature. Hebrews 12, 5 and 6 says, And you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, or be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastens every son He receives. Believer, mark it down. Sin brings discipline. Sin causes pain. Sin is destructive. Don't ever take it lightly because it's an affront to God and God can play mighty rough when He needs to. Now here's what I want you to understand. Our salvation, believers, is secure. But God will chasten us in this life if we fail to walk in obedience to Him. So what is this former pastor who now claims to be an atheist, where does he end up then? I mean, is he, is he not a Christian now? Was he ever a Christian? Well, I think we have two options here. All right, Number one, he was never really a believer. That's possible. There's plenty of people in seminary teaching the Bible that don't know God at all. all right? So yes, there's plenty of pastors that don't know God. This is possible. I don't think so, because I knew the man. All right. Secondly, I think our second option, he's a believer and he's apostate. And in my opinion, this is where he's at. He has committed apostasy. Now, notice what Yeshua says to his disciples. I mean, people have a hard time with this. Well, you can be a Christian and deny God. Yeah, I guess it's possible. Look at Mark 14, 26 and 27. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Yeshua said to them, you will all fall away. For it's written, I'll strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. So Yeshua warns his disciples, you're going to all fall away. The term fall away here is from the Greek skandalizo. It's a common word in the New Testament, translated stumble, offend, fall away. We get our English term scandalize from this Greek root. The essential meaning virtually every time this word is used in the New Testament is that something happens that negatively affects one's walk with Christ. Yeshua's meaning is that the disciples are going to desert Him because they're going to be offended by Him. And originally the word was used of a trap or a bait stick used for catching animals. So Yeshua's prediction is that His disciples are going to be offended at His suffering, they're going to be offended at His death, and they're going to run away. They'll turn from their dependence upon Him because they fear what happened to Yeshua could happen to them, so they scatter. Now, if we consider that these men knew Christ thoroughly, intimately, they'd been with Him for three years. They watched Him raise dead people. <laughs> why you, if Yeshua's with you, I'm like, why do you care about anything? Why are you worried about anybody? He raises dead people. All right? He calmed the sea. He spoke and the sea went flat. They'd seen Him cast out demons, heal leprosy. Why in the world would they failed to follow Him. We could ask ourselves those same questions, right? And they all left Him and fled. Wow. This is the scattering of the sheep. Yeshua understood what was to happen that night in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
Let's talk for a minute about apostasy. What exactly is apostasy? Apostasy is a falling away. It's a withdrawal. It's a defection. And when I talk about apostasy and falling away from Christ, I'm talking in terms of our communion, not our union. Please understand that. Your union was settled in eternity past. Okay, God called you. He brought you to Himself. You are joined to Him. But we so often forsake the communion. We don't have fellowship with God because of our sin. We'll never lose our union because we're united with Him. Paul says this in Romans 6, 5. If we have been united with Him in His death, if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection. We're joined to Christ. Now our communion with Christ is experiential. That's our fellowship. That can be lost and depend on our walk and how we live. To lose our communion is to come under the chastening hand of the Lord and to suffer temporal judgment. No biblical passage nowhere ever warns or threatens the loss of our union. And if, if Paul or any writer was going to threaten somebody with a loss of union, it would have been the Corinthians. We need to understand this. Our salvation is secure. Our salvation is based upon an act of one person, Yeshua the Christ. If you don't know this verse, you got to learn it. you got to memorize it. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. That's Adam. Adam sinned. He was a federal representative of the human race. He sinned. We sinned. So also, here's the other side of the equation. By the one man's obedience, that's Christ, the many will be made righteous. Why are we righteous? Because of Christ's obedience. Please get that. The security of our salvation is not based on our actions. Just as we were all condemned by Adam's act, we were made righteous by Christ's act. We're all condemned through no fault of our own. We weren't there. He was representing us. But we're also justified through Yeshua, through no merit of our own. I think understanding our condemnation in Adam helps us see our salvation is not based on our works. It's based on Christ's finished work. Our salvation is secure because it's based on what Christ did for us, not on what we do for ourselves. So a believer can fall away from Christ. A believer can deny Christ. He can be involved in the grossest of sins if he's not careful. Many today teach that a true believer will never apostatize. But a believer will always walk in obedience. If that's so, why, why are there so many exhortations in Scripture to stop sinning? To not do things? Because we're prone to do that. The Bible teaches that a Christian can walk in sin and even turn from the faith. Well, on this video, Demas says, Christians are miserable. Christianity is about avoiding pleasure and suffering. Yeah, I would say this is true for Christians who live in sin. I think that's the Bible's sure clear about that. And that's how it's supposed to be, because when you walk in obedience, you're in fellowship with God, you know joy, unspeakable. There's nothing that brings more happiness or contentment than walking in fellowship with the living God. Demas goes on to say, another thing that helped me get to this point, referring to becoming an atheist, that's me, is that for two years, I wasn't going to church. And wasn't reading my Bible because I was depressed and didn't care. This is what helped me escape. I stopped the brainwashing. And I thought, you know, that's really telling. That's what you got to, that's one of the steps away. Stop reading your Bible. Stop going to church. Stop being around Christians. You know, get away from all that stuff so you can just totally ignore, ignore God and just walk away. Then he says, Christianity is about being miserable. Believer, if we don't spend time with the Lord in His Word, it becomes easy to drift out of fellowship. This is one of the reasons, one of them, I'm always harping on you to read your Bible. That's the Word of the living God. We've got to spend time in it so we know God. We know what He wants. We know what He expects. And it helps us to be grounded and solid and we get around other Christians and we're encouraged by them. So these things are important. And when you forsake them, it's easy just to slide away. Now my hope and prayer this morning 
is that we will realize as a people the pain and destruction that sin brings and therefore turn from it and live a life of obedience to God. People, I can tell you from experience, there is no joy like the joy of being in fellowship with Yahweh. Sin brings discipline, but obedience brings blessing. Psalm 1611, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. David means here that the nearness to God Himself is the only satisfying experience in the universe. God created us and He created us to live in fellowship with Him. And when we do that, we know true happiness. I know the pain that sin brings. I also know the wonderful, abundant joy that God brings when we walk in fellowship with Him. We see this in the life of characters of Scripture. You know, Paul was in fellowship, loved God, served God, and no matter what you did to him, he was okay. You know, he could deal with it. And life is the Christian life is not about suffering and about misery. The Christian life is about joy and fellowship with the living God. And I, I, I can't even imagine what my life would be without the Lord because I know I'm a stubborn pig-headed person that would just, you know, our marriage would have blown up years ago. But God plays a factor in that, you know? And I probably would be in jail or dead or something because, you know, I just... But God makes a difference. And I'll tell you, the fellowship is amazing. You know, what could be greater? Walking with the God of the universe. The God who created all things is with me and I can fellowship with Him. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And I believe this man walked away from the faith because his sin cost him dearly. He says, i got to escape the guilt of this sin. i got to escape this God who's mad at me. So I'll just say I don't believe in Him. Pray for him. Pray that he would turn from this Stupid idea that he's come up with. Realize who he is and come back to God. He's also living with a woman, not his wife, so that you know helps keep him on the track of, I don't believe in God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your grace to us. Lord, your word is so clear. You know, David was a great man. We love to read the story of David and Goliath and a man who walked in faith, trusting you, Completely victorious. And then we see the same great man fall to sin and it cost him and just destroy his family. The pain, Lord, I, I, I feel the pain in David's voice as he cries out at Absalom's death. God, make this alive to us. Help us to realize, Father, yes, life is difficult. Sin is tempting. It's always available. Help us to realize the pleasures that are there walking in fellowship with you. Keep us on the straight and narrow. Use us in one another's life. Use your word, Lord. May we be faithful to the word of God to stay in it that we might walk with you, Lord. We love you, Father. Amen. Okay, questions, comments? I got a letter from, uh, or a text from Nancy and Carl Falster. Um, they said, when the Bereans show up for fellowship at Falster Farm, there's always work to go along with the great theological discussions. Thank you, David, for your presence in all our lives and the messages you bring. Carl prayed for you this morning over breakfast. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. I certainly could, could use your prayer. Somebody wrote, if pagans do not have the law, can they sin? According to 1 John 3, 4, sin is transgression of the law. Yes, pagans can sin because God hears your law, but God doesn't expect pagans to obey His law. Okay? They can't. They can't obey it. 
Because they're pagans. They don't have the Spirit. They don't understand the things of God. They can't follow the things of God. And that's why it says, you know, don't judge those without. Don't, don't come down on them. That's how they live. That's how they're supposed to live. They're sinners. It's those who know better. It's the truth. So the word, I mean, sin is still sin because God says don't do this and God's over everybody. But if you're not a believer, you know, God, what do you expect them to do? And, and that's why we don't, you know, don't jump down unbelievers' throat for their sin. They're doing their thing. That's what they do. It's believers that we're concerned with. They should, they should be different. They should be living differently. Uh, Marv says, read the Bathsheba Syndrome by Ludwig. We teach it now for coming COs. We still have a ton of unethical problems, but this is how the Navy explains why some apparent good people do bad things. Well, that's interesting. So Marvin teaching at the academy and for the naval cadets and stuff here, they're, they're teaching about David and Bathsheba. That's awesome. Um, that, thanks, Marv. That's, that's encouraging. All right. My family is Mormon, and their church is called Latter-day Saints. How should I explain to them that the Bible doesn't teach future end times, and their church is the deception of men? Well, that's, uh, you know, <clears throat> I've dealt with a lot of, uh, you know, Mormon missionaries, and boy, they're, they're indoctrinated, they're programmed, they're locked in. I can show them the scripture. It's like water off a duck's back. The only thing I can tell you is you can pray, because unless God changes their heart, their heart remains hard. All right, God's got to take out the stony heart and give them a heart of flesh. That has to happen. Share the gospel with them. Show them what the scripture says. And who knows what God will do in their hearts, but it's up to God. That's why we've got to be on our face before Him, praying, crying out. You know, they're, they're very well indoctrinated on what they believe. And they'll make most Christians look pretty pitiful when it comes to the scriptures. So you've got to, you got to know the Bible to deal with them. I don't know who this is from, but it says, Powerful message, thank you. You're welcome. Um, <laughs> someone says, Before this declaration from demand was made, pu demand was made public, we started a study of one of, it says Dean's book, but I, I think he means Demas's book. He's written a couple of books. I find it to be biblically sound, theologically, theologically rich book. I find it had to, that would have been written by, I find it hard to believe it would have been written by an unbeliever. And I agree with you. Like I said, I think Alan was a gifted speaker. I think he was, he was, uh, uh, he knew the scriptures. I fellowshiped with him. Oh, Demas, yeah, Demas. What? Are you? <laughs> anyway, we know who we're talking about. But anyway, you know. So yeah, that's what makes me think. And here's the thing: when I see a Christian sin with impunity, I think, are they a Christian? But you don't know God's timetable. You know, God can string things out a long, long time. My brother lived in sin for years and years and years. There were times we didn't speak for years because of his sin. You know, and finally God got a hold of him. And he's doing great. But God had to deal with him pretty roughly, you know. And he, his phrase is, God knows what buttons to push. I'm like, yeah, he created it, so he does know what to do and get your attention. But he did. And so now we have great fellowship together. But that wasn't true at a time. Gary? Well, I've asked this before, but God dealt with Pharaoh's heart. Hardened his heart, softened his heart, whatever. And... Nebuchadnezzar's heart, but left David to his own devices. Yeah, well, you know that that in the scriptures, you know, Pharaoh hardened his heart, God hardened his heart. Yeah, he was God was hardening his heart by giving him opportunities to change, and he wouldn't. It just got worse and worse and worse. So, yeah, he let David. You know, you want to do that? You can do that. It's going to cost you, just like us. You can go sin. You know, you can do that. Is that free will? I wouldn't say, I don't believe we have free will, but I do believe we make choices. A lot of them dumb ones, you know? 
Norm says, thank you, David. I know this to be true when I wore a younger man's clothes. <laughs> I committed adultery. The misery was unbearable. I still reap the consequences to this day. I am forgiven, yet my son is ever before me. This is good because it keeps me looking to Yahweh. And yes, I enjoy fellowship with him. Thanks for sharing that, Norm. I'm, you know, I'm sure we could get a lot of testimonies as to the destruction that sin brings us, okay? Um, Dana says, because of this, I'm assured that he's a child of Yahweh who was, who, who was taken away as his soul was saved. I must be missing something. That, uh, let me back up here. I, you know, when there's a bunch of them together, I've got to figure out what date they're from here. Thank you, David. S- since the pain of someone you care for who's turned their back, but remember, Paul's admonition put them out of the church for the destruction of the flesh that their soul may be saved. I had a personal experience with a friend who was cast out of the church for sin. A few months later, he suddenly passed away. We can be assured our Heavenly Father is in control of things. Because of that, I'm assured that he was a child of Yahweh who was taken. You know, that's the thing. God deals with people, and you know, we got to do what we're called to do and let God take care of it. But you know, I can tell you, I know plenty of Christians that are absolutely miserable. And I'm like, keep hitting yourself in the head with a hammer and wonder why your head hurts. You know, 